it seems like the hardest thing is to memorize all of the melody. There's so much melody. It's, it's really melismatic and it's really irregular. So every syllable has a different um, pitch. So when you, um, you know, sing like, my pal's name is Footfoot, there's a separate pitch to every word always on every song, like every time. And then the guitar always matches it. So it just seems like there's this pull and then it, whether it goes with the drums or not is like completely, you know, there's no like rules. Welcome to Polishing Turds with Nick and Cal. My name is Cal. And I'm Nick. And this is the show where we take a deep dive into the wonderful world of bad music. What? It's different! That's right. Oh, I don't get it. Today we're fucking your shit up. <laughs> this episode is a Cal episode. And uh, I guess we'll just call them Cal-isodes? Cal-isode. Why not? Sure. And they're... These are going to be few and far between, um, but at the time of writing this, I was in between jobs, and I had a lot more time than I'm used to having, and I decided it was time to do an episode. Yay! And this is one I've wanted to do pretty much since the start, and just finally found time. So uh, instead of being treated to Nick's wonderfully smooth and radio-friendly baritone vocal stylings... Oh, shucks. <laughs> you're going to get stuck with my weird-ass voice. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's only a mini-sode, and I'm hoping that we all learn something together today. I I am super excited to do this, Cal, because, uh, you know, like, I'm like, it's not like I try to, like, hog the mic or, or the spotlight or anything. It's just that, like, I, I'm the one that doesn't have three kids, and so <laughs> I have a little bit more time to do the writing, but um, you've, uh, you've, introduced me to this band i i kind of knew of them before but it was only uh because of your insistence that i really got into them and this is going to be a very fascinating episode and definitely different from most of the stuff we've done so far it's kind of a gamble to start our uh unofficial season two i guess you call it this way but <laughs> again it just the timing kind of worked out and at it's... least nobody's named cyrus in this <laughs> yeah yeah well, and I also understand, I'm basically assuming this is going to have like one of our lower view counts at first, but I do think the people that, that decide to tune in despite not knowing who the Shags are, are really going to like this. Absolutely. Like you, you hardcore OGs, like uh, you, you will appreciate this. All right. Well, you know, so I don't really have the same way with words as Nick. So I decided it's best if we just dive right into this one and I'll just explain what the fuck is actually happening later. So, are you ready, Nick? Damn right I'm ready, Cal. Let's polish this turd. My pal's name is Football. He always likes to roam. My pal's name is Football. I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, Football don't live here no more. My Okay. <laughs> we said it'd be different. I'll tell you this, I, I can't really blame Foot Foot for running away from that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you're you're probably wondering what the fuck just happened to you. And what you just were subjected to. But don't worry. Papa Kelvin's here to help you out. What was that? And how could anyone possibly consider it good? And I'm doing hard air quotes. I know you can't really see. 
not only good, but uh, to skip ahead a bit, Frank Zappa once claimed uh, that this band was better than the Beatles. Yep. That is a, that's a real quote. And uh, also, Kurt Cobain, a huge fan of uh, this band, The Shags. And I'll admit, I'm sure you have gathered by now, Cal Dennison on the list. Uh, this, <laughs> we, we got a lot to get into here about what makes... This whole episode is going to end up as kind of a study of what makes music good. Yes. And, you know, as always, we have to start these stories annoyingly far back at the beginning. So, who are the Shags? The Shags are a group mainly consisting of three sisters... Dot, Betty, and Helen Wiggins. They had a fourth sister named Rachel that occasionally played live with them, and they have two brothers that had minor contributions as well. But for the most part, I'm going to focus on the main trio. So correct me if I'm wrong, Cal, but like, aren't these technically the one of the first female-led rock bands? I don't. Well, I can't. I can't think of. I mean, not that. I mean, these. They, I would say I would say famous, female but... led in of like in terms of writing their own stuff because there's like the Ronettes and stuff like that. In the yeah, 50s. yeah, not, yeah. Not counting like the Supremes or or like the yeah the, the, the like those types of bands, but like in terms of rock instruments, like uh, it's one groups. of the earliest I know of. Yeah, three yeah. women getting together and saying we are going to write everything and do everything. Yeah, um, like, wait, I, like we, these... I'm sure they wish it had turned out better than this. But... Like OG Riot Girls. <laughs> Formed in 1950 and releasing their first and only record in 1969, the reason they began to play music in the first place is pretty much as strange as their actual music. Playing what Rolling Stone once described as, quote, sounding like lobotomized trap family singers, (laughs) the Shags entered the world of music at the insistence of their father, Austin Wiggin. Sometime in the mid-40s, Austin Wiggin Jr., was a man working as a mill hand in the small town of Fremont, New Hampshire. Described by others as an ornery loner, Hmm. Austin and his wife Annie had a humble and largely uneventful life. Now, Austin had a mother who was heavily into, wait for it, palm reading. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) And if if somehow you don't know what that is, uh, it's a science question mark where you... You know, look at someone's hands and basically predict their future based off like shapes and lengths of lines. I I don't know. It's stupid. Yeah, because everybody knows, Cal, that the way you determine somebody's destiny is based on where the stars were aligned on the date and time that they were born. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's the real way. I mean, that's just logic. <laughs> now, Austin was a very superstitious man. And he took his mother's palm readings very seriously. This was gospel to him. One day after a session, she told him that he would have two daughters who would grow up to be in a popular music group after she passed away at some undisclosed date. Well, as fate would have it, his mother proceeded to pass away. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, Austin had two daughters shortly thereafter. I'm going to offer another conjecture, Cal. I am guessing that Austin Wiggin Jr. had a lot of palm readings that ended with something like, if you don't clean your room, you are going to die today. (laughs) That's a technique I've never thought of. I should sit down with one of the kids and offer to read their palm and get them to do something for me using it. Like, this path leads to candy and ice cream if you do your homework. This path leads to certain death and destruction. Well, he took this turn of events to mean his mother's prophecies were correct. And he did the only rational thing a man burdened with such destiny would do. When his daughters were old enough to hold instruments, he began pushing them into a musical life. Um, I do have to put in a side note here, though, before we get too far. He went on to have more than just those daughters. He had an extra one and some sons. <laughs> an extra daughter. But I guess I take it <laughs> is as that, like... Is that how he, des- he described it to people? It's like, <laughs> yeah. hey, I got an extra daughter, hey! These, these two are the prophesized ones. <laughs> the rest of these guys, I don't know. <laughs> no, I guess his mom, she didn't say only two daughters, so uh, I guess... Okay, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just letter, letter of the law, maybe not the spirit. <laughs> So the girls, um, originally limited to Dot and Betty, but then Helen was very shortly pushed into the group as well, uh, were completely taken out of school 
and then forced to play the shitty instruments that Austin had spent most of his meager savings on. Jesus Christ. And like, how how old were they when he did this? So did he do it all at once or was it like just kind of a, a gradual thing? Like you, you're, you're done with second grade. You Now you play guitar. My understanding is he did it all at once, um, oh. no matter what grade they were in. I think Dot was like high school and then you work your way down. So Helen probably was like, yeah, maybe like, Fifth or sixth grade? I don't know. Jesus. Too early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet it sounded really awesome at first. <laughs> yeah. We get to just stay home with you, Dad, like, and learn yeah. instruments. Fuck school. We're going to rock. <laughs> now, in addition to this, when not practicing and rehearsing songs for him, he reportedly, you know, the girls saying this later in life, enforced a regiment of calisthenics to keep them in shape so they could perform. <laughs> and if you look at any footage of them performing <laughs> it didn't work like they're just they pretty much just stand there it's it's not like they're like in sync like do right. like all these like intricate dance moves right i also found this interesting because as early as 1950 then music was not just about music and even little new hampshire austin wiggins was aware of this <laughs> he knew like you guys have to be hot or this isn't gonna work I, you know, like, I'm sure, like, Al Jolson was probably, like, an ugly motherfucker, and same with George Gershwin, and I'm sure as, like, their lives went on and they saw the birth of, like, uh, television and MTV and shit, they thought, like, holy shit, I'm glad I was born when I was. (laughs) Yeah, lucky I got famous before TV. (laughs) Back then, all they cared about was talent. Yep. So, you know, I know what you're thinking. We got ourselves a real Jackson 5 situation going on here, right? (laughs) Well, there's one major difference that I have to point out. Neither Austin Wiggins nor any of his daughters were musically trained in any way. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) In spite of what I just heard 10 minutes ago. (laughs) And, you know, additionally, Austin had spent all his money on their instruments. So lessons were completely out of the question. This is like, I think, the most amazing part of it to me. Like, he really couldn't scrape up enough for any lessons like there's got to be i mean i know they're in a really small town in a very kind of backwoodsy part of the country but there's got to be like some you know like old guy in a cabin with a a rusty harmonica who could at least show him a few notes you would think yeah you'd think there'd be someone like or just like an old lady who tinkers on a piano and just like they'll watch your cat if you (laughs) teach them a lesson I, I feel like it must have been that nobody in town wanted to associate with this <laughs> yeah. dude. Like, ornery loner? Like, you got to put that in context, people. New Hampshire is an entire state of ornery loners. <laughs> to be known as the orneriest loner in New Hampshire, you got to be one crazy motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> He's, yeah, you have to grade him on a curve. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's basically, you can tell, he was he was banking on pure faith in this prophecy that they would just kind of somehow achieve musical greatness. <laughs> Every day he just, like, woke up and looked at his palm and be like, come on, come, come on. on. She'll figure out a G chord soon. <laughs> As you can imagine, this lifestyle most likely caused very significant stress on these girls. Mm. And before we dig into it too far, I'd like to present Exhibit 1 of my evidence. I think it's time to play another clip. This is a curious song called Who Are Parents that I think gives us some small insights into the way Dot, who writes most of the lyrics, felt about her father at the time. Then they start turning from the ones who 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, like just to like reiterate some of those lyrics, like, uh, we must remember parents are the ones who will always understand. Parents are the ones who really care. It almost feels to me like they're writing that to convince themselves that that's Definitely. true. I, I get some major, like, you know, the mom and Carrie type vibes. Yeah. With those lyrics of, you know, yeah, you have to, you have to tell yourself that because otherwise you're left realizing your life is shit. Yeah. Cause I mean, especially the, uh, the older ones had enough life experience to know that their family is very different than other families, I, I would think. Oh, yeah. So, well, he- and it's like we were saying too off off the mic, like if if you told me this was recorded in a, a cult's commune, mm-hmm. I would completely believe you. It it almost is. Like it's yeah. a, it's a very just a very small scale cult this family. And one thing that just kind of fascinates me is uh just how like this record got made. Like this was yeah. a, this is a time like it it wasn't just like like today where there's TikTok where you could any dumbass family can po- post a bad song in uh in 30 seconds. You know, they they had to go to a recording studio and like actually spend a lot of money and a lot of time to get this like engineered and produced. <laughs> and like and that was a that was, you know, like not impossible, but a lot more effort in the sixties and this, but at the same time, it's probably also only possible to do this type of project in that era before the internet, before these girls can like, like reach out to the rest of the world and know exactly how insane Mm -hmm. their father is. And before, you know, we had like the, the kind of breakdown of the patriarchy where, the father wasn't given quite as much leeway to completely dominate his family the way that Austin Wigan uh, complete, uh, clearly did. Yeah, absolutely. I also think nowadays, you know, if you even if you have no musical training, just with the software that's available, oh yeah, you, you can make a convincing song. They uh, they have a software that basically you can like you basically sing some kind of melody and it picks out the chords for you. It's Jeez. it's just it's it's like super fucking easy. No, I will say, you know, so Dot's lyrical melodies, and we'll get into it more. They tend to be kind of all over the place. <laughs> what chords would it pick her? Uh, I mean, that's just it's a whole other ball game. Well, you know, to sum up why I played you that clip, it's it's essentially what what Nick already said. It's Dot has a lot of big time feelings about her family and. They come out on this album in some mysterious ways. And this brings us into one of the things that I believe captivates people about this album all these years later. Uh, it's There's this constant and inescapable feeling of sadness in all the lyrics on the Shag's first and only album. Hmm. See, it wasn't until 1968 that Austin finally pulled together the money to record and produce the Shag's first album, Philosophy of the World. Dot, the oldest sister was 22 by this point. And that means that, you know, basically the entire developmental period of her life, she had been in the basement of a small-town home. Jesus. Only being let out to play a few songs at the Fremont Town Hall on Saturday nights. I would love... If I... We've talked about, like, time machine shit on the show before. Like, my new number one thing is, like, I am going to go to <laughs> Fremont Town Hall Saturday night in 1969 and see how they, the locals are reacting to this shit. <laughs> this is one of those moments, too, you just desperately wish somebody had had a camcorder with them. Ah, here comes Austin's shit. Austin's girls. <laughs> oh, boy. Better <laughs> get another beer. <laughs> Definitely worth ruining their lives for this music. <laughs> As a consequence of this, the lyrical content of the album gives you an almost pristine snapshot into the life of Dot at this time, because frankly, she didn't have a whole lot else going on. (laughs) The album's title, Philosophy of the World, is actually very fitting for the lyrical nature of the songs. They almost all deal with the only subject matter Dot had to draw from, her own thoughts and feelings about the world around her. Take these lyrics from the song Things I Wonder. And you know, we're gonna do we're gonna turn the tables. I enjoyed writing this in here. <laughs> Nick, you're gonna read this. Oh. And yes, 
I want you to read the whole damn thing. All right, let's do this. There are many things I wonder. There are many things I don't. It seems as though the things I wonder most are the things I never find out. I wonder about the stars above. I wonder about the birds that fly. I wonder about your love. But most of all, I wonder why you make me cry. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder why we have to say goodbye. There are some things I don't understand. There are some things I do. But one thing I don't understand is why we have to be so blue. I understand why you feel the way you do. Because I feel the same way too. I wonder why our minds drift astray. I wonder why life goes on this way. I wonder why we have to part. We both know it'll break our heart. There are many things I wonder. There are many things I don't. I'll be glad when I find all these things out. But until I do, things won't change with me and you. Very nice. <laughs> I mean, when I think about like lyrics on songs like that and, and a few other songs, they're not really that far off from a lot of pop music that comes out today, especially by like kind of more teenage artists. Like they're, they're drawing on very basic human themes, especially mm-hmm. things that young people wonder about. It's like, it's not the most like poetically expressed thing, but it's like, it's very honest and real. Well, I think that's actually what I find so sad about it though, is it's so, again, she's 22. And I guess when I hear it, I, I see this, caged bird stunted personality <laughs> yeah i really do it's she's literally crying out like i there's so much shit i don't know guys get me out of this basement <laughs> yeah like 22 year olds should be talking about like russian literary movements in the 18th century right <laughs> or even if you're on a farm you you should be talking you should know like about like gravity and things <laughs> like that like, i just get the vibe that she really wishes she was you know doing what everyone else is doing that's her age yeah it's very it's it's very haunting when you when you think about it that way because i just it's really hard for me to conceptualize this coming from a 22 year old i i keep picturing like a 13 year old yep in my head because like that is that is the mental age of this song yeah and i i think that is the mental age of dot at this point in her life uh because she hasn't had any of the experiences that make you grow beyond this that we all have had by then at the same time you know like i can think of some like fred durst lyrics that are like even less (laughs) mature than this yes that is true (laughs) it's funny you read her lyrics you know and after some of the bands we've covered you're like well this isn't bad (laughs) it's like maybe ivan moody got some ideas from this no actually i i as i was saying i think this is what draws people to the album is i i think they're good lyrics like once you know her story and then you read the lyrics, it's very captivating, at least to me. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Uh, like knowing, knowing the history of this band, I think is actually pretty key to, well, I mean, you, you could appreciate it just as a music person knowing how fucked up it is. Yep. But once, but once you really know the backstory, then it like, becomes like a, a key to this like very dark and, and sad forbidden world. Yep. That totally. And, you know, the thing is, this is not an isolated incident to one song. I mean, it's through the whole album, and and I think this is a good excuse to play another clip. So we're going to do this song. It's called Sweet Thing. Yes, I just sweet thing, sweet thing, sweet thing, but you can be so mean. Yes, I just sweet thing, sweet thing, sweet thing, you used to make me dream. But in this time, you interpret that cal like uh do you, is she talking about like an actual partner or a friend or like or is she like talking about her her dad i i lean dad i think she 
framed the song as about a boy. Mm-hmm. So she could perform it in front of him without him getting set off. Yeah. So I think she says, oh, yeah, it's about a boy who made me feel bad. But it, it's yet another expression of how unhappy she is with this situation and arrangement. Yeah. Like one minute you're, you know, me, or one minute you're nice, the next minute you're so cruel. Like that's sounds like. That's- yeah. And again, these are songs that she had to perform in front of him a bunch. Well, all of them had to perform in front of him a bunch of times. Mm hmm. And somehow he was like, yeah, that sounds good, ready to record. I don't, I don't know. But. <laughs> Just like, you know, I mean, theoretically, they must have workshopped these songs. Like, yeah. Uh, like, so was he just like, would they do the verse? And he's like, uh, that's that's not enough. Add a, add a little lick there. Like, yeah, I have no idea. It's clear that Dot has a very childlike understanding of the world around her and the way people interact. There are countless examples of her wondering why people are mean or cruel and her casually mentioning that she's sad or blue. Yet these instances are typically juxtaposed with an almost naive positivity. And it's honestly, it's really charming at times. Yeah, it's a... Uh, you could tell that she she's trying to make... And they all are trying to make the best of, of their situation. Definitely. And it, I have to point out before we get to, into the too heavy of the music theory stuff, this childlike nature carries over into the vocal melodies themselves. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed by now that there's no consistency and seemingly no thought into the, put into the melodies of these songs. And you know what I'm talking about? Like the for when we played opening, where it's like, the chorus is my pal's name is foot, 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 foot. He always <laughs> likes to roam. Like it's this really like up and down, almost random sequence of notes. It's 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 like somebody stepping on and off a ladder over and over again. It's it's just it's very it's very bizarre how they how they settled on these vocal melodies <laughs> yeah. to drive the songs. Now, you know, as we've mentioned a lot of times, I, I have kids and Nick, you're around kids fairly often these days. Mm-hmm. And I noticed it hearing our middle one singing in the shower or anytime she's in the bathroom, really. <laughs> but have you noticed that this is the same way children uh, whistle or sing or hum to oh, themselves when 100%. they're just making shit up? That's absolutely it. Like they just, they, they took that like sing song, la da 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 da. I'm going to get a new phone today. And like, just, yeah, they're just, they just like committed that to record. Right. Yep. <laughs> it reminds me, there's this one on the Ricky Gervais show back in the day. He's interviewing uh, the bald guy, Carl, Carl, like Carl, Carl Plugington. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's talking about an awkward dinner he was at. So he just started whistling a tune, and then Ricky's all, <laughs> and Ricky's all like, "What? Like what song? What song?" He's like, "Oh, you know, just any note." <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> and that's what I picture when I when I hear this. I, I mean, I, I want to like try to deconstruct it, but like I know I know that there's no way I can possibly penetrate their mentality as they were recording this, but. Are they maybe aware that they don't have a very strong vocal range? But then again, do they not even, they probably wouldn't even know what a vocal range is right. necessarily. So it's it's this observation that leads me into the other aspect that makes the shag so curious to so many people. And we're just going to call this part Cal's Theory on Teaching Music to Aliens. <laughs> now we're going to get a little heavy as heavy as this show gets on music theory, you know, I, I try to avoid it because I know not everyone gives a shit. Uh, but with the shags, you have to talk about it, yeah. I think. So in music, there's a certain set of rules we all collectively acknowledge. You may not know that you know them, but I promise you, you can tell if they are not followed. The rules are as follows. There are certain agreed upon frequencies that we call notes. So there's an A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Certain notes sound good with other notes. We call these chords. And, you know, if you doubt me on this, just go up to any piano anywhere and just hit the two white keys that are right next to each other. <laughs> and you'll be like, yeah, that doesn't sound very good. We also know certain chords sound good in sequence with other chords. Uh, we call this the key of the song. And then we also all agree that music should have a steady beat. 
you can change the beat in a song, but only in like a purposeful and planned way. You can't just like completely lose track and slow way down and everyone else is still going fast. You mean you can't just hit the drum like, you know, you just <laughs> taped the drumsticks of somebody having a seizure? Yeah, exactly. And that is called the tempo. Now, obviously, there's way more rules. That is like the most fundamental I can way I can describe music theory to somebody. If you want to learn more, go uh, watch Rick Beato or something. Exactly. I, I don't really want to get into it on this show. It's not what it's about. Uh, the point of it is these are all things we just expect to hear in music, whether you're a musical person or not. There's a reason you like a pop song on the radio, and it's these rules. Hmm. So what happens if you force children to play instruments in a vacuum with little influence from what we typically understand as music? And to be clear, it's not like the girls have never heard a song in their life. Uh, Just to give you a small respite, a taste of normalcy in this episode, uh, I'll give you a quick clip from one of the girls' favorite bands, Herman's Hermits. Oh, yeah. So with that in your mind, do a thought experiment with me. All of you out there who have never touched a guitar and you don't know a single chord or any note on the neck, I want you to sit down and write a song just like this. It's a ridiculous thing to ask, right? <laughs> it's but, like it's like asking me to kick a field goal. Like I've yeah. never I never played football. I've watched thousands of hours of it, but I could not kick a, a, a ball ten yards, I guarantee you. Yep. But this is exactly what Austin was asking his daughters to do. You know, he he literally thought, like, if I just drill them hard enough, they'll figure it out. (laughs) But, like, how would that be true? And what happened then is this approach created some of the most genuinely unlistenable, yet oddly compelling music I've ever heard. 100%. It's it's idiosyncratic is (laughs) what it is. It it just... unknowingly breaks every rule we've ever set for what music should sound like. And essentially they invented their own version of music complete with its own rule set. It's true. And that's, it's incredible because I mean, you'll, you'll get into it, but they, there's an internal logic to this, even if it makes zero sense to me or probably any person outside of the Wiggins family, (laughs) anyone at all. There's also little things like they didn't know how to keep their guitars in tune. They, they there's nothing as such there's no such thing as like an electronic tuner back then. Mm. Or or the way I tune my guitars, I can just bring up an E note on YouTube mm-hmm. and just tune to it, but nothing like that. So basically their guitars are like randomly out of tune on each track on this album. <laughs> 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 like uh, and that what that means is that the frequencies you're hearing are not our agreed-upon notes that humanity has said mm-hmm. is a note. The other thing is they don't know any chords, really. So a lot of their guitar lines, if you listen to the whole album, God help you, <laughs> it's it's a lot of like single-note melodies of just her plucking like a note at a time because mm. they don't have that knowledge of what's going to sound good with that note. And, and along the same lines, they had no understanding of key. So they're simply playing any note or any made-up chord together and goofing around till they sounded okay to them. <laughs> that's, a, that's the the wild part. Is like they, how do they how do they settle on like one like one note like note change over another? They do they was it trial and error or was they did they just kind of have this intuitive like like grasp of that's what, what I their think was? I think they got it like close enough. That they were like, that's the best we've done so far, so let's memorize and practice that one to get our dad off our back. 
<laughs> so you end up with these weird half-baked like yeah, there's a lick in there technically, but it's weird. It's it's like uh it's almost like, you know, on the British baking show where they do the technical challenge mm-hmm. and they pick like some really obscure ass pastry that none of the bakers <laughs> have ever heard of. Well, like take that, but now like the bakers also don't know how to bake. Right. <laughs> and they're really no, no, lost. And they have to mill their own flour. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like make it really complicated. In the last one, you know, we talked about tempo. I think you heard Helen's drumming. I don't think they have any clue that you're supposed to just stick to a speed. That's to me, that is the one element of the shags that puts them over the top and makes them like from like strange to like just what the fuck? Like just trying to trying to figure out what Helen is doing behind that drum kit. Like it's, dude, I, I feel like okay, you don't know what keys are, you don't know. Like what a what a what a G chord is, or or where to put your right. fingers on the guitar. I feel like every human should figure out what a steady beat is. Like yes, it's it's in every song you've ever heard. I could put my nine year old in front of the drum kit in the basement right now, and she could do something a little more steady than that. I promise <laughs> you, I've heard her do it. That like maybe I don't know, maybe she walked in to like 30 seconds of a Led Zeppelin concert, just the part where, you know, Bonham is doing Moby <laughs> yeah. Dick and she's like getting super crazy about it. She's like, oh, that's what you do. Oh, got <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's crazy. So what this all means is that to anyone raised on the traditional rule set, a shag song just sounds like chaotic noise. It sounds like people who are unorganized and bad at their instruments. And amazingly... This isn't entirely the case. You see, this is how the girls played these songs every Saturday at the Fremen Music Hall. <laughs> Again, I really would have loved to have been there. Dot produced transcriptions for this stuff. And we'll get more into that later. So you could say, if if you stretch the definition of you know words, <laughs> uh, they knew what they were doing. And I think the, the most evident one I could find is the song That Little Sports Car. So if if the Beach Boys spent ten years huffing gasoline, <laughs> this, is, this is what they'd sound like. I have a funny story that I thought of with that one too. Is I I was when I was doing the research for this, I watched the studio engineer. He gives like an interview, and he apparently helped record this album. Hmm. And he was saying they they'd play this, and then one of the girls would just like stop. And they're like, "What's wrong?" And she'd say, "Oh, I messed that part up." <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, and all everyone everyone in the recording booth is looking at each other like, "What the fuck are we doing?" <laughs> By that part you mean like the entire session? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they they knew this song in their own head. Like they, they knew how it should go and like, it seems so insane. It just has to come from relentlessly playing it in the basement over and over and not stopping to think like, "Is this something anyone would even want to hear? Why are we doing this?" I mean, just like Credit their tenacity. Like, they never seem to have given up on this. Like, uh, they, like they, they, just, they just kept doing it and doing it. They must, have, they must have enjoyed some part of this, I would think. Right, Cal? Like, just even if it's, like, their lot in life, like, and, and their dad forced them into it, they have something resembling a musical chemistry yeah. together. And it's, like, even though it's, it all sounds so inept and so... Like uh, like offbeaten and 
completely out of whack uh, with musical convention, they clearly are used to playing together. Yeah. And so like there's there's some there's a cohesiveness there that like you get you get a feel of the intimacy of this family unit weirdly expressed in uh, in this music. That is true. They I mean yeah, they basically get to not do school and bond with their family. And if they even for a second entertained the idea that their dad, this prophecy was right, that's fun too. <laughs> then you get to sit there like, yeah, we'll be rock stars one day. For, for all they know, they really will be the next Beatles. <laughs> Imagine a future where this took off and we're all jam like pop music's all based on this now. And then like we do a show about bad music and it's <laughs> and it's like Rush. <laughs> <laughs> Why are the drums on the same beat as the guitars? <laughs> oh, God. This leads us to the final segment of this mini-sode. I want to pose a question to you, Nick. And it's intentionally annoyingly open-ended. <laughs> what does it mean to be a good artist? And before you answer, I want to play you a clip from a very famous album. The same year the Shags released Philosophy of the World... A professional musician and close friend of Frank Zappa released his critically acclaimed opus, Trout Mask Replica. This is a song called Frownland by Captain Beefheart and his magic band. My smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your frownland. My spirit's made up of the ocean and the sky. The sun in the moon in all my conceits. I cannot go back to your land of gloom where black jagged shadows remind me of the coming of your doom. I want my own land. Take my hand and come with me. Too late for you, if it's not too late for me to find my home. Yeah, man. I okay, so I, I've known about Captain Beefheart for a long time. I think we probably discovered him around the same time back mm-hmm. in high school. Like, and I I love his music. And me I love too. that album. And actually kind of like the Shags. It took me a little bit to get into it. Like it because it does. It really does sound like chaotic noise at first. I remember the, it's actually you played it for me. I didn't. I didn't find it independently of you. Oh, you had yeah. bought it and you showed me it. And I remember thinking you had finally gone off the deep end. <laughs> I remember thinking like, how? What are we listening to? It's no. It's. I mean, it's weird. But if you really pay attention and uh, and like kind of do some digging on the guy too, you'll you'll realize like. First of all, all the musicians are very adept. Like that, oh, like yeah. they are, they're consummate professionals. They are are not like fucking up the actual lines that they're playing. It's just that like what he's doing is like writing five different parts that have entirely different <laughs> tempos and keys, and that change their <laughs> tempos <laughs> and keys frequently, and not in a way that it. Well, it, sometimes in, in Captain Beefheart's music, you get moments where the parts seem to come together. Yeah. And it seems like they're drawing towards some kind of cohesive motif. But then, like, the minute you get close to that, they, they all just kind of scatter and break away like a flock of geese or something. Mm-hmm. It's And it's just, it's like that for the whole album. And 99 out of 100 people will just hate Trout Mask Replica. But if you really are into music and really appreciate like stuff that's weird and uh, rule breaking and uh, very daring and innovative. I, I beg you to listen to this album at least once because I honestly think it's one of the like most fascinating and uh, enlightened pieces of music in of the 20th century. I totally agree now. So obviously we both agree. It's good. We also seem to both agree to the average person, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> no. So that goes back to the question of how do you define what makes music good? I don't fucking know. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> it's you can kind of define it in two different ways. Like, do I like it, mm-hmm. or is it like is it technically hard to play? Does that make it good? There's all these different reasons it could be good or considered good. It's such a subjective concept because I there's a lot of music that I will acknowledge is technically good that I just don't like either because it doesn't emotionally resonate with me or it just is drawing from uh, musical styles that I have no interest in or like some other random factor like I just I think the singer's a douche right or or, you know or it just doesn't doesn't personally speak to me that is one thing I have come around on in my older age when I was a kid if music was good solely based on if I liked it and I respected (laughs) it and as I've gotten older I've realized like that's good it's not for me and I wouldn't buy it but I I am aware it's good yeah like Billie Eilish is really really good and I almost never listen to her music just because yep. it's, it's not it's not my kind of thing and then i think there's the 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 other side of that where it's there's stuff like when i tell people sometimes that we did limp biscuit they're like <laughs> why limp biscuit's really good so some people good is simply i like it yeah when we say we do a show about bad music the way i explain it to people most often is it's music that has been culturally defined as bad Mm -hmm. And we start with that cultural definition and try to unpack it as much as we can. And sometimes you and I conclude that society was right. These guys (laughs) suck. They didn't didn't deserve to get famous. (laughs) Or like sometimes we say, hey, there's actually a lot more here than meets the eye. Or sometimes the thing that, you know, got famous isn't the best thing they ever did. Or sometimes like they did a lot stuff that was a lot worse later on for for whatever reason but i think unpacking those uh cultural uh imposed definitions is like goes gets to the heart of what our mission on this show is all about yep absolutely so as nick described so well captain beefheart is 100% doing this shit on purpose so similarly to how austin treated his daughters Uh, Captain Beefheart famously terrorized his own band into memorizing (laughs) these like insanely complex polyrhythmic songs. I feel like if you're going to be this like dictator of a band leader that's going to like put their bandmates through hell, it better sound fucking weird. Oh, yeah. Because like imagine if like he did all that, he imposed like this like cult like authority and you know made them do calisthenics and play practice eight hours a day and they've ended up sounding like blink 182 (laughs) did you read my mind because that was the band i had in my head when you were saying that like imagine if it was for blink 182 minds think yeah (laughs) so these songs to majority of people sound like shit really (laughs) Uh, but to trained musicians and everyone, you know, in on the joke, so to speak, uh, they think it's genius. Mm-hmm. It's musical experimentation that breaks every rule in the book with gleeful purpose and intense technicality. That really is it, Cal. Like, they are, like, just taking a hammer to rock and roll conventions and just just, just saying fuck you to everything, uh, like like the fucking kinks and Herman's hermits mm-hmm. and, the, and the who are doing, and they're doing it with the same instruments. Like it's almost as if they're saying like, look what you could be doing. You're right. playing the same three chords over and over again. Like, look what we can do. And that's what makes it so fun where, where captain Beefheart did it with like a, a surgical precision. The, the shags did it completely organically and by accident. <laughs> and I think it's these traits that have taken this small, self-produced album from an obscure novelty to an unlikely, bona fide cult classic these days. So how did it uh, get to the point where people ended up hearing this and it, and it became a, a kind of a cult classic? The biggest one is the thing you mentioned earlier. Austin Wiggins could only afford to make like 100-something copies of this. Mm. In fact, a first pressing of this is like, one of the most expensive albums out there in the world. Yeah, I can only imagine. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, people wanted this. but So what happened, though, that made it blow up 
is Frank Zappa was the guest on this 70s talk show called Dr. Demento. <laughs> I, I had never heard of it until I looked into this, but... He he also, uh, he kick-started Weird Al's career, too. Okay. Well, so I was watching it, and he's... Zappa comes on, and, and Demento asks him to play some clips of some of his favorite songs he's listening to right now. And to the world's surprise, he picked two Shag songs. <laughs> now, how he heard it, I don't... I have no fucking idea, Nick. I... It's it, it might be one of those things where like people people must have made bootleg copies and just passed it around like there was like you know the, the scene was like very small back then mm-hmm. and like a lot of these artists knew each other and the minute that and, and I think the like the world was just kind of more communal yeah. back then and uh, and people would hang out they would go to the same parties and be like hey man like check this shit out yeah. it's like these three chicks from new hampshire made this fucking crazy album i did see that dude some guy on acid like hearing the shags first time <laughs> you would be like what's happened to music what's going on you you would like there are probably a lot of people that heard this and wondered is it the drugs or does it sound yeah. like this? Like, <laughs> am I being pranked somehow? <laughs> am I listening to a normal record but it sounds like shit because I got some bad acid? No, apparently a lot of people watched Dr. Demento because that sparked a huge interest, uh, you know, among people that like outsider music and, you know, just general weird shit. And then a lot later in 1988, Dot was going through her closet. And apparently she found all the original recording, like the tapes, that she thought were lost. Mm. So she enlisted this Rounder Records, um, some label, I don't know. And they were able to release a reissue with, you know, way more than 100 copies. So all of a sudden, you know, physical copies of this thing weren't limited. And anyone in the know was after one. And I think by 1988, the world was a little bit more ready for a record like this. Like the yeah. like indie rock was a thing by then. Um, like there was a there was a very prolific underground scene, and there were other like in the wake of like punk and post punk, and uh, you know like some early early indie music. There were some artists uh, that were doing not not really what the Shags were doing, but they were but some version of rock rock that was uh not very adeptly played but mm-hmm. that was part of the charm i'm thinking of uh, uh artists like the vaselines or beat happening sure like stuff that kind of emerged out of the indie and punk world and they would kind of like be unapologetic about their lack of musical sophistication and uh, and instead just kind of zero in on how authentic and uh and charming and intimate they were. I I love that when bands do that. Yeah. And a lot of stuff I like nowadays the most is is weird like that. Mhm. So before we close this thing up, uh I want to touch on what the Shags are up to right now. If this topic interested you, please go read about the Shags. There is a a wealth of Shags lore out there. And you know, one of the main sources for this episode was a great article by Susan Orlean. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right, written for The New Yorker in 1999. Um, And that one, along many other great pieces floating around. There is so much interesting stuff out there about their personal lives and history that that I had to leave out to keep this episode mini, Mm. Um, as well as factually accurate. I didn't want to include anything that's hearsay or... There's a (laughs) lot of rumors about how bad Austin Wiggin actually was. Yeah. And I just kind of... I don't want to get into yeah. it. Even the sisters among themselves argue about the truth of some of this. You know, I, I I come into this when I like do research sometimes, and like sometimes you just you just gotta go with your 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 best guess or just or just present the sides as such and, and leave it at that. But that's but there's a it's a whole rabbit hole that like I encourage people to go down, and and I definitely will myself. And as you can imagine recreating these songs is excruciatingly difficult how 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 could yeah you (laughs) you basically have to unlearn your instrument you so like there are transcriptions of this that exist that people have gone through and when you start actually trying to put helen's drumming to real time (laughs) signatures it becomes a nightmare (laughs) god damn (laughs) but that's what makes the efforts of the dot wiggin band so impressive that's right. That's Dot where Wigan I'm going band. with this. 
shockingly dot still plays shag songs <laughs> jesus she doesn't play with any of the original shags anymore they, they've all lost interest except her <laughs> uh so she's enlisted the help of several professional studio musicians to play these songs live uh as recently as 2014 so let's check it out There's a song by the Slits called Difficult Fun, and that is what it looks like these musicians are having right now. <laughs> they they sound they they they're clearly like kind of laughing and enjoying it, but also like fuck, this is hard. I know. <laughs> yeah. So as always, we'll put these up on the YouTube channel. I think this is one of those things you just gotta see it to really understand. It's 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 incredible that and and if. You, if you walk into this set and don't know anything about the show, yeah, you just... would be like, "What is happening?" They sound like garbage. <laughs> it it would make even less sense than seeing them at Fremont Town Hall. Well, in then, and then some like you know, you know, some hipster next to you, like he'd be like, uh, "Actually, it's supposed to sound like that." <laughs> Big dick about it. I know, and you'd immediately want to punch that guy. <laughs> also worth noting, Dot Wigan put out a solo album called "Ready Get Go." okay i uh, yeah and she released it on alternative tentacles which if you're cool you already know is dead kennedy's frontman jello biafra's record label let's check that out quick as well So that that must be what the sh- the shags thought they sounded like. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> if you if you add practice and knowledge, <laughs> you would have had that. Yeah. Well, not well. That you know almost makes me grateful that they didn't know what they were doing. I totally agree because that's far less interesting. Yeah. I, this episode, our show would not be complete without a room reference almost every episode, but. <laughs> It's like Tommy Wiseau, how why his new movies no one gives a shit. Yeah, he 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 did movies or, or like like he did like a TV show or something after the room, and it's all like really awkward and unwatchable. Right, because now that he knows he's supposed to be funny, he's no longer funny. Yeah, it's a it's I've been resisting the urge to make that uh, comparison, but it it really is more apt really than anything we've talked about so far on this show. But it's like. The room and philosophy of the world are both lightning in a in the bottle moments. Mm-hmm. Like they are just, they're so weird and uh, and unself aware. 
Yes. That it's, it's the result is uh, magical. Yep. And I don't want to like put down like a dot too much because I'm happy she's making a living out of this. Like I'd, I'd go see her just to support like her being making money as a professional musician, but I don't really have any interest in what I just heard, which basically sounds like a kind of run of the mill, like indie garage rock. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think I'd be embarrassed if someone caught me listening to philosophy of the world. No, cause I could explain, I'd like, Everyone knows I'm a weirdo. I could explain that. No, that, that, I'd be a yeah. little embarrassed being caught listening to Banana Bike. <laughs> that yeah. feels more like a song for children or something. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> so as I'm sure you've realized by now, I have a, a deep appreciation for the Shags. I have come to truly love this record over time, even though it feels like some sort of Adderall-fueled fever dream. <laughs> In fact, I think that feeling is what I like. It's an unintentionally open and honest look into the abused minds of, you know, mentally stunted young girls. From the freeform vocal melodies and surprisingly dark subject matter to the completely offbeat (laughs) and arrhythmic drumming, it's one of those things that just has really grown on me with every listen. It's It's a challenging record, and if you're looking to something to just jam in your car... (laughs) <laughs> it's absolutely a turd. This is not your thing. This is also not love making music. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you can make love to the shags, you like belong in an institution. <laughs> or or your partner is an inanimate object. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're the type of person that values art as art and you're willing to just, you know, put on your headphones and and take in something new as an experience, there's a ton here to discover with this record. I totally agree with that, Cal. This record has grown on me, even like just within the past uh, couple of weeks as I've listened to it. And it's just, it's it's fascinating because it is so unique unto itself. Like there is yeah. absolutely nothing in the world that sounds like philosophy of the world no. or <laughs> will ever. I don't think ever will again. So, like, if nothing else, you have to appreciate it from that perspective, especially when, especially the more music you listen to, I think the more you'll appreciate the shags. Because when you really start to, like, listen to music, especially modern pop music, you realize everything sounds the fucking same. Absolutely. Every, everything is drawing from, like, the same chord progressions, the same musical ideas. Uh, so to hear something that just completely throws all that shit out the window and isn't and they weren't doing it from like a like a very pretentious arty perspective either they know these are humble salt of the earth people that's the other half of the magic is it yeah it was it was a complete accident yeah like as much as i love love captain beefheart like he is basically a musical nerd yes. who's trying to yeah. who's trying to prove a, a look how much smarter point. I am than all of you. <laughs> yeah, like, but these guys, like, they thought, uh, you know, they they thought they sounded like the birds. And they, <laughs> they just fucking didn't. But it's really, really charming, and I, I think everyone should give this album a listen at least once. Yes, anyone with a passing interest in in music for music's sake, and. We, you mentioned the term outsider art, Cal, and uh, I think uh, going forward on this show, like we d- we kind of touched on this in our meme music episode, like kind of getting to stuff that is just like really, really out there, and you know, be- got famous for being out there. But I think there are kind of two types of bad music that you know you and I are drawn to. One is the stuff that like just society kind of collectively agrees are bad, like creed and vanilla ice mm-hmm. and this is stuff that is famous but a lot of people don't think it deserved to be and then there's shit like this yeah and uh and and we we will keep doing the bands that you guys want us to cover but i also really think uh you deserve to hear artists like uh, the shags and a couple other artists that we we plan on covering soon because this it, it, honestly, it almost interests me personally more to cover stuff that yeah. uh, really just came way the fuck out of left field. Oh, it's like it's just like an artist. You have to do one for them, maybe, maybe like three for them, and then you yeah. do one for you. <laughs> yeah, and and I think our fans are you know, eventually over time going to appreciate 
the outsider stuff as much or maybe even more than the the conventional artists yeah i'm excited again i'm glad we took a chance on a I keep calling this season two. It is in my head. It's, it's, I'm calling it season two. This is season two. There you polishing go. Polishing turds. Who's going to get killed off? <laughs> Who's going to find a new romantic interest? Will we get canceled? <laughs> find out. Right. And you can find out by following us on social media. Oh, nice All the social medias. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't have this spiel memorized. I I didn't write it in the script, and in hindsight, I should have because I've never said it once. <laughs> no, no, for for sure. Uh, like just yeah, Facebook, like search polishing turds. Uh, Instagram, we're polishing dot turds. Uh, Twitter, we're on Twitter too. Uh, really, kind of Facebook and Instagram is where we we get the most engagement and post the most content. But and also, uh, if you want to email us, um. Polishing, it's Polishing Turds Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. We love taking questions from fans. We love uh, engaging with you guys. If you reach out, we'll probably respond because at least I personally have not much better to do. <laughs> so uh, definitely engage with us and be part of the Polishing Turds community. And uh, yeah, so Cal, uh, I want to thank you very much for writing and doing this episode because I think it, it is fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. There will be a few of these peppered in throughout the Polishing Turds lifespan. I hope so. I'm not going to promise an amount because my, my life is packed. But I, I am sure a lot of our, our listeners uh, enjoyed the respite from my, you know, <laughs> just no, you my voice. Ra- you have a radio-friendly voice, man. I, I noticed it. Uh, almost, almost too much so sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to leave with some closing lyrics off the title track of their one and only album, because I want to go out with an artsy effect. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. There will always be one who wants things the opposite way. We do our best. We try to please. But we're like the rest. We're never at ease. You can never please anybody in this world. Deep. Have fun with that, bitches. All right. Thank you so much. See you next time. So you're gonna give it an F, man? Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. I, uh, I think forcibly making children record their pain and suffering on vinyl, I think usually gets me is an F on my book. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. It'll grow on you. Give us some listens, man.